Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. We recently discovered the Biohackers Babes podcast, which is a sister duo on a mission to help empower others to become their own biohacker and upgrade their own life. They cover a wide variety of health topics with everything from fasting for women to using different wearables to track your health to peptides and biological age testing. If you're ready to take control of your own well-being and optimize your health, you have to check out their show, The Biohacker Babes. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, My guest is Dr. Amani Balur. Uh, She's a renowned Syrian pediatrician and human rights activist. Uh, She's best known for her work during the Syrian Civil War, where she managed an underground hospital known as the Cave in Eastern Uta. So we're going to talk about that. I think it'll be uh, really, really interesting. So, Amani, thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a little bit about, you know, the conflict that you were uh, involved in and and this hospital. How did it begin and how did the idea of the hospital come about? Well, I was studying medicine. Uh, I was at the fifth year of the medical school when the Syrian revolution started. It started peacefully. People protesting in the streets, asking for human rights, asking for some dignity in Syria. And to the people who don't know, we, in Syria we have a dictator. He's the uh, son of the other president who was the president for 30 years and this current president now for more than 20 years. So they control everything in Syria. We have no democracy, no human rights. So when the protest uh, started and uh, yeah, people just go on the street uh, shouting. Sometimes they carry flowers to show that they are peaceful. The Syrian regime started immediately to shoot the people at the beginning arrested them, tortured them to death. I mean, they did everything to stop this protest, but it was, you know, expand. Uh, So they started to use all types of weapons, uh, the war planes, bombing the people. Then the Syrian regime uh, started to ask Russia and Iran for help. And yeah, they started to to help the Syrian regime military. Uh, so uh, Russia and Iran were uh, fighting the Syrian people with the, the Syrian regime. I was, uh, as I said, a medical student. I graduated from Faculty of Medicine in 2012. I found myself amid, amid of this war, like I know something that I can help. I didn't practice a lot, you know, I just graduated, but uh, my town and the, the area around my town, the place called the Eastern Wuta, it's in the countryside of Damascus. Uh, also, the people there uh, participate in the protests. So the Syrian regime punished them. So they besieged us and, uh, you know, prevent the food, the medicine, the medical supplies, everything, and bombed us with all types of weapons that lasted for more than six years. I decided to stay to help the people because many doctors decided to flee. So we were only a few doctors, like volunteers, and tried to help because we saw that innocent people around us, children, women, everyone was, you know, 
target for the Syrian regime, Russia and Iran. So I saw these people and they need help. And that was, that's why I studied medicine to help these people when they need. So I decided to stay and help. How did the hospital come to be? How did it start its operation? Was it just the only only place where you could help people or how did that happen? Yeah, the Syrian regime and SLIs, from the beginning, they targeted the hospitals. So they destroyed um, many of the hospitals in the area. So we moved underground because, you know, to protect ourselves, the medical staff and the patients. Uh, so we were working in a basement at the beginning. It was like two or three rooms underground in a basement. And then we expanded, you know, year after year, we need more space. We need more you know, we have a lot of patients, casualties, wounded. So we expanded it and, uh, you know, we continue working uh, underground. It became the central hospital in the area. And because it was like underground, always dark, we had no electricity and not, not enough uh, resources. That's why we called it the cave. It was like a cave. It's, you know, unhealthy for the people and the patients to stay underground. But this is what we could do. So yeah, for years after this, in 2016, I became the manager of the hospital and the first woman to be a manager for a hospital in like conservative area in war zone. I became the manager of the hospital for two years before we were forced to leave in 2018. And how did you get supplies in there? You had no electricity, no nothing. How did you get saline or beds or any of that? Exactly. At the beginning, the Syrian regime, it, it started in 2013. At the beginning, we used the, you know, the resources that we have, the medicine that we had at the time, medical supplies from the destroyed hospital. We took some uh, devices, you know, and we started to work to use what we have. But it was very difficult in 2013 and 14, especially very, very difficult to get the medical supplies and the medicine many times. I mean, people died in front of our eyes because we didn't have medicine, for example. We didn't have, like, sometimes the diagnosis tools to know what they suffer from. Uh, I was working as a pediatrician at that time in a, a clinic in the hospital. So I remember seeing a lot of children came, like, ask for medicine. They, they have sometimes very, like, simple disease, and they need just uh, sometimes antibiotics. And we, we don't have. So the, the cancer patients, especially, they, they suffer and suffer and died in front of us. Like that lasted for two years. And then people started to, uh, to make a tunnels underground. And these tunnels go to, to Damascus city and smuggle some uh, medicine, some medical supplies, some food. So the, the situation got better a little but of course we can't you know get like a big devices through a tunnel and when the syrian regime found these tunnels they bombed it but we you know people do another tunnel try you know to get of course the, the food and the medicine we got it wasn't enough because there were nearly half million people and the area were besieged and with a lot of, you know, disease, living underground, we, we need everything. I mean, we need food for all the people, like medicine. We have all 
it was very difficult life. So the needs were very huge. That's why it wasn't enough. But, you know, that was the only way we have to smuggle the things we need through the tunnels. And I would just also say that uh, it was very expensive because we pay this, uh, the people who go through the tunnels to buy this from Damascus secretly, of course. So that was through some Syrian leaders who work for the Syrian regime. So they, they took a lot of money for like some medicine, you know, it was very... Well, they would uh, charge you a lot and extort you, essentially. Exactly, yeah. What made you have to move the hospital? When did that happen and why? To move the hospital? You asked when we had to move the hospital? Yes, when did you have to abandon the cave and move the hospital? Yeah, I just talked about this, that the hospitals were under bombing and they were targets for the bombing, so we have to move to move underground to protect ourselves, the, the medical staff and the uh, patients. So we, we had to move underground. Once you were underground, you mm-hmm. had to eventually move again and again, or what happened? Yeah, exactly. Some hospitals, some places underground were also bombed. Although it was underground, it, it was, you know, bombed when the, the Syrian regime discovered it. They bombed it. So uh, many small hospitals like our medical centers, they forced to, to move to another basement or another place underground. But to, uh, our hospital, the cave, it was in a basement, like under a, a big uh, building. So they bombed us many times, but we stay working underground, try to protect the hospital by bags of sand or something like this to put it above, to close, you know, all the places make only one entrance so it was uh, kind of protected so we tried to to protect it when the Syrian regime bombed us many times the the shells or or the missiles uh, hit the building above us but it was empty we were under in the basement but i remember once in 2015 it was very bad actual memory when the Syrian regime hated us and uh, they targeted the basement actually and the missile entered underground and destroyed two rooms of the hospital and killed three of my colleagues they were just, you know, working as the volunteers, as nurses. So, were there people that were giving away your location? Were there bowls in the uh, hospital that worked for the government, or what happened? Look, of course, there were people working for the government. Of course, we don't know them, but of course, I'm sure there were. But uh, there were also the helicopter which always in the sky we can hear, uh, we always could hear uh, its sound. So it was watching and they were the, the watching the ambulance when it entered and the, where it goes, I think. So they know, they knew the hospitals, I think. That's why they targeted us many times. And they targeted the ambulances also. They destroyed three of the ambulances for, the, for our hospital and they killed two, two drivers. Yeah, that's terrible. So what are some lessons that you learned from running this this hospital? What did it teach you? It was, you know, very horrible period of time, actually. I learned a lot. I, I became really another person after this experience. I was like 24, uh, 24 yeah, years old when this started. So I was very young. I was a medical student. I knew nothing about this, like living in a war zone. So, yeah, I just shocked. To, to see at the beginning how they shoot the people, how they kill them, and then the bombing, like war plane come and bomb on innocent people, on a hospital, on a primary school. They bombed the primary schools. 
So to see that the wounded people, the children, and the worst I experienced was a chemical attack. It was in 2013. They targeted us by sarin gas. Oh, Jesus, that's terrible. Yeah, and I started my book with this story because it was the worst, I mean, worst thing I witnessed. Like thousands of people who were suffocating in front of our eyes and we could just save, I mean, we were some volunteers, some doctors, we have no resources, as, as I said, so we could only help some people of these people and many of them died in front of our eyes. And many children, many, you know, when the, the like chemical weapon, it, 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 it doesn't differentiate between, yeah kids or women or innocent people or other people so they targeted two cities two two towns in the area and like thousands of people inhaled this poisonous gas and died so yeah that was very horrible i was like trying to live to live my day i mean day after day i mean we were very hopeful that this will end the the international community will do something to stop this and i mean that was like Everyone saw the videos, everyone hears us. It was like in the 21st century. I mean, it, it's not like something that they can cover. So they know about us and like no one do anything to stop this. That's last for more than six years. And then becoming the manager of the hospital as a woman and face like discrimination against women from my community or some men in my community. Also, that was very hard experience because, you know, I mean, just because I'm, I'm a woman and I remember a an educated guy was working with me in the hospital. And when I became the manager, he said, you are our colleague. We had no problem with you, but we don't want a woman to be our manager. So I shook to hear this. I mean, it's not the time that you can talk about women in this way. I mean, I'm, I'm a doctor. I can run the hospital. So, yeah. Well, it's just stupid, stupid. You know, they saw what you were doing. It makes no sense. Yeah, I really felt sad to hear this and frustrated many times when some men came to, to the hospital and asked. Sometimes they need something, so they ask about the manager to speak. Equal, and they, when they find a woman, some of them said, "No, we don't talk with the women." I mean, not everyone. To, to just be clear, in Syria, you can find a woman to be a manager of the hospital, maybe in the cities, not in the countryside. But it's not something. I mean, weird. But like this conservative area in war zone, so some men have this idea. So to face this, to deal with this, and with the the massive casualties and to, I remember in 2018, last time before we left, we just had, I remember this massacre when the Syrian regime or someone said that uh, they have bread and people were for a few days underground without food. So a lot of people go and try to, to get bread and they bombed them. The Syrian regime targeted them. So there were a lot of casualties, a lot of burning bodies. I saw this and we were very tired that time because massacre after massacre every day. We didn't sleep, just working. I remember even the corridors of the hospital full of bodies that we just watching we could do nothing for these people so you can imagine what kind of person this i mean these circumstances can make you so i just wanted after all this to just to make the voice of these people who still there the victims 
make them heard around the world, tell the world about their stories, help the other people who stayed there. I mean, especially the people who, who are living now in the camps in Syria and in neighboring countries and still suffering for more than 10 years. So yeah, this is my goal now to advocate for these people. This is my goal from the book also. Right. Well, how do you feel like this changed you and your relationships with people? Is it, do you feel like it's hard for you to relate with people nowadays or what, what did it do to you? That makes me feel more about other people who are suffering. That changed my goals in the life, changed my dreams. I was just a dream to be a pediatrician. I like kids. I wanted to be a pediatrician, have my own clinic in Syria, like maybe have a family. But no, now I, I, all my dreams changed. Now I, I want justice. And this is my first and main goal in the life to get justice for, for the victims, for the children who died without sin. I mean, for the people, for the detainees now, now in, at this moment, like hundreds of thousands of detainees in the Syrian regime prisons, they're being tortured now. I mean, every minute, maybe some of them died. And no one know about them. We we need to, to speak for these people. They have the right to live. They have the right to be free for the children in the camps. For example, there there's 2 million or more than 2 million child in Northwest Syria now without education. They have no access to school. So these people have the right to live. This is now my, my dream, my goal to come back to my country to rebuild my country. So this is what I think about every day. This is my life now, to speak with these people every day. I have friends, colleagues, part of my family still there in Syria. What what things have you tried to get attention to this that have worked versus things that you've tried that haven't worked, that people don't seem to respond to? Well, uh, first, I, I wanted to tell all the people around the world the stories of these people, the story about Syria, what happened, the truth, I mean, against the, the Syrian regime propaganda, the Russia and Iran, you know, they, they are stronger than us. I mean, they took their stories. So I want to tell the truth for everyone. That was through my documentary and the book now. So I want everyone to read this book, know about these people, know the whole truth, this, the story of the victims. And after the you read the book, you have, uh, I believe that everyone have responsibility to help the people who are suffering, not only in Syria, everywhere around the world, it's a responsibility to help each other. I now I joined a uh, Syrian American Medical Society. It's an organization which uh, supported medical projects in Syria and neighboring countries, also in Greece, in Ukraine. So we're trying now to help, you know, as we could as possible. And the, and uh, our organization now did, did a great uh, job so far. We have like 40 facilities, medical facilities, and make training, support women, support nurses and midwives. So this is my way now. I'm trying to do what I can through this organization to help people there and tell everyone to help them to be their voices, speak up for Syria, speak with the politicians. I mean, you have the right here like in the US, in Europe, to speak with politicians. We had no rights in Syria to speak. So speak, make a pressure on the Syrian regime, at least to release the detainees, to to get justice for Syrians, donate for the organization. There's a lot of organizations who support Syrians now. And just make quick research. Ask for these people who are suffering in the world, everywhere, like in Syria, in Gaza, in, in Africa, maybe. Some people now 
Now, sometimes we watch like these hungry children in Africa, for example, and we think that, okay, we get like sad for them and then we turn off the news and go to continue our life. No, we have responsibility mm -hmm. to do something. I believe everyone can do something. Everyone. Simple thing, maybe. Just to speak about them. Tell someone about these people. You know, when, when we care about each other, like sometimes when we, we suffer, no one will care about us if we don't care about each other, right? So this is my goal now, to tell the people. Yeah, yeah exactly. Why, why do you think that Everyone in the world is uh, worried about uh, Ukraine and Russia, and no one cares about people in Syria. Is it yeah. because there's no resources, or like, what, what do you think is the real reason that you yes. know governments act or don't act? Yeah, always there's ways to help Syria. I mean, but because the Syrian revolution and the Syrian war started in 2011, it's now like 13 years after this. We noticed as Syrians, we noticed that people started to forget Syria or or like feel hopeless of helping many people and especially the the UN agencies who were dedicated a lot of uh, aids at the beginning to help Syrian people to help Syrian in the camps to support education support health uh, field now they cut off their aids I mean and people continue to suffer because more than like 13 years and that's why I I decided to write this book and to remind people about the Syrian they still suffering they still need help so yeah because it become like like an old crisis and they start to feel hopeless but i mean there still be people there like many many children they need help you can't just say no this is something we can't do nothing for it always you can do something okay oh, very good how can people help that are listening what what can they do they see the movie first or what yeah exactly i i really want just to tell people to feel that that make make the people who are suffering feel that you care about them. Try to know their story, know know the whole truth by my book and other resources like like watch the the news. Like just at the beginning, know the truth about what's happening about them. And like you can donate for the organizations, you can speak up for them, tell their stories. Everything can help. I mean, just when you feel this responsibility that you are human being and they are human being and this is our goal in this life, so you can do something for them. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I'm sorry about all the terrible things that you had to endure and, and the good work that you're continuing to do. But thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.